this last seventh pillar is called the church is a prayer-based community. So you see the seven that we've already discussed, right? The church is built upon Jesus Christ as Lord. The church is built upon the Word of God. The church is gospel-proclaiming. The church is missional. The church is focused on godly worship. The church is a community of believers. And lastly, the church is a prayer-based community. This is something I have um, that's very close to me, something that I tend to be very passionate about. Prayer is the capstone of the church. Prayer is the fire. It's the combustion of the Christian life. Prayer is the fuel that lights a passion for Christ. Right? It's that fuel that ignites that passion for Christ. And it's a passion that also includes a passion for lost souls. And a passion for the gospel. And a passion for the church. Many profess Christians, many, many, many professed Christians lack power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Because either one, they do not know how to pray, or two, they don't pray. Right? So there are many people that profess the name of Jesus Christ that will go out and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but have never once experienced the power and the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what some of the the great men of the faith have said. Charles Spurgeon. We shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. A.W. Tozer. The most critical need of the church at this moment is men, bold men, free men. The church must seek in prayer and much humility the coming again of men made of the stuff which the prophets and the martyrs are made. Leonard Ravenhill. The true church lives and moves and has its being in prayer. D.L. Moody. I'd rather be able to pray than to be a great preacher. Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach, but only how to pray. Listen, Christians who do not pray are powerless. Churches that do not pray are powerless. And it does not matter the size of the church. Whether a church has 5,000 people or it has five people. If it is a church that does not pray, it does not know spirit power. It doesn't matter how many programs it has. It doesn't matter the numbers. The only thing that matters to the church is does the church have power and does that power come through prayer? Now, on our how do we define a prayer-based community? Well, this is what you'll find on our website. Calvary Tabernacle emphasizes prayer and communion with God as a vital link in our lives. Prayer is not minimized, but it is emphasized. We diligently seek the Lord with all decisions and we elevate prayer in every aspect of spiritual life. 
We encourage fasting and prayer groups that focus not solely on our immediate needs, but on the will of God in all things. We believe that all our decisions and plans are to be bathed in prayer, seeking to know the will of God. We are a praying community. That's how we define it. Now let me state that when this was written, right, when this was written, it was true in theory. But I want to say something. I reluctantly admit that it is not 100% true in practice. It's not. This last pillar reflects what we should be as a church. We should be a praying church. But it is not reflecting who we are in practice. The proof of my statement is that our prayer meeting on Wednesday night is the least attended meeting of our church. And that's exactly why we're going through this study. It's critical that we understand what is the role and the mission of the church. As believing Christians, the church is a living organism, not a living organization. We come together because we have a common bond in Jesus Christ. And our love should be for the church to whom Christ died. He died for the church. If I had my way, I would call a solemn assembly. In the Old Testament, when Israel was facing crisis, when Israel was facing genuine needs, they would call a solemn assembly. And a solemn assembly would involve the people fasting, the people consecrating themselves to Christ. It was so sacred and so so solemn that even husbands and wives were to refrain from physical relationships during this period of a solemn assembly. And they would call the people and everyone would come out and everyone would come together and everyone would fast and everyone would repent so that the nation of Israel would know the will of God and be able to move in the will of God. It is my heart that we as a church should do the same. That we as a church should call a solemn assembly. That we as a church, all as one, should come together in prayer, in seeking the Lord, in seeking His will for this church, in seeking and consecrating ourselves that we would indeed know the will of God. That we would come with a spirit of repentance. We would come with contrition for sin and for a fervent desire to witness God's work among us. My heart's desire above everything else is that we would be a people of prayer, both corporately as a church and privately as individuals. Paul mentioned this in Ephesians 6.18 when he wrote these words to the church at Ephesus. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. 
I love this. Paul tells the church at Ephesus, after he tells them about put on the armor of God, he says this, after you put on all that armor, after you're waging the spiritual war, what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to pray. You're supposed to pray. That is your weaponry. You're supposed to pray. Lift up your petitions. But here's my advice to you. Pray at all times. Pray at all times. And be on the alert. The church needs to be on the alert. We as individual Christians need to be on the alert. The greatest need in the church today, the church universal and our church, the greatest need is prayer. Not prayer that is, oh, Father, I need this and bless this and all. Prayer that comes from your gut. Prayer that says, I want to worship the Lord God in prayer. I want to lift up His name. I want to praise His name. I want to magnify His name. Prayer that comes out of a soul that's burdened for more of God, more of Christ, more of the Spirit. If anything is ever going to change, it has to be born of the Spirit. And we need to desire that. Being a Christian isn't just being made right with God and kicking back and waiting for either death or for, for the Lord to come. That's not what it is. Being a believer is a relationship with God. It's a relationship with Christ. Being a believer, we have the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. And we are to desire the things of the Spirit. The praying church is a powerful church. A praying church is a discerning church. A praying church is a spirit-led church. A praying church is a church that Christ desires to reveal Himself. The praying church power is not contained in words. That's not what it's contained in. It is a dependence on prayer. And the early church demonstrated this really well. Look at Acts 1.14. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 1.14. Acts 1.14. Notice how God responded to the early church. Speaking of the early church, it says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is speaking about the 120 believers after Jesus' death and resurrection. What were they doing? What were they doing? Note the Word of God tells us they were with one mind. And secondly, they were continually devoting themselves to what? To debating theology? They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Here's a question we need to ask each other, and not asking for a show of hands or head bob or, or anything. 
But how much time do you spend in prayer? That's a personal thing for you to answer. How much time? Would you be able to say that you are continually devoting yourselves to prayer? You know, if, 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 if we look at the church at large, I think prayer is the most de-emphasized thing within the church. And then people talk about how come they don't have this and they don't see that occurring in their lives. Well, if we're not pressing into Christ, if we're not believing by faith the things that the Word of God tells us to do, we're going to be weak. And the problem is, our eyes are so full of the things of the world. The things of the world take precedence. And the things of the Spirit languish. Notice this first church, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they were with one mind. Oh, church, if we could be of one mind, that would be great, right? They were of one mind, but they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Look over at Acts 2.42. Just turn over a little bit. Acts 2.42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. I know I covered this in one of the other pillars, but notice one thing. They were continually devoting the same thing that it says in Acts 1.14. They were continual. Prayer was an essential fact of their church. They continually prayed. Now in the life of the believer... You must be a person who continually prays. What does it mean? Does it mean 24 hours a day, every minute of the day, your prayer? No. But what it does mean is that you are in a spirit of contemplation and meditation and prayer. And that the important things you bring to the Lord in prayer. You should have an active fellowship with Christ. Active fellowship and communicating with Christ comes through two things. It comes through the reading of the Word of God, wherein God speaks to us. And number two, it comes in prayer. Now, if you read the Word of God, but you don't study the Word of God, it's not going to be beneficial. And if you read the Word of God, and you're certainly not praying, or your prayers are formulistic, and they're rote, and they're traditional, you're not going to know the fellowship and the wonder of Christ. Listen, on Tuesday night Bible study, I think here in church on Sunday, I've been emphasizing one thing. What it all boils down to. You know what the Christian life boils down to? It boils down to this. Do you love the person of Jesus Christ? I, 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 want, I want to be clear with this. I'm not talking, do you love the ethic of Jesus Christ? And I'm not talking about, do you love the spiritual example of Jesus Christ? And I'm not talking about do you love the historical figure of Jesus Christ. 
I am asking you, do you love the person of Christ? If you have been born again, do you love Him? Do you love Him to the point that I'm willing to live for Christ? I'm willing to sacrifice for Christ. And if you love Him, do you desire Him? Oh, you know my famous saying, right? The proof of desire is in the pursuit. Don't tell me you love something that you don't pursue. If you love Christ, you'll pursue Christ. So the question that we all have to answer for ourselves is, do we love Christ? And if we love Christ, how do we pursue Christ? Well, we pursue Him three ways. Number one, through the study, meditation, contemplation of the Word of God. Number two, through the fellowship of the saints in the church. Number three, through prayer. I want to hear the voice of God. I want to know the will of God in my life. I want to know Christ. I want the Holy Spirit to give me a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ so that I may know Him and that He may know me. The first church we see in the book of Acts was baptized in prayer. Baptized. And as a result, they were baptized in Holy Ghost power. They were baptized in Holy Ghost power. Supernatural power. And it was mighty things were accomplished through the person of the Holy Ghost. Listen, our church needs that. We need that. The church must be praying and begging God for a true Holy Spirit revival and awakening. We need that. Let me ask you a question. Don't you want to see souls want for Christ? Each and every one of you have loved ones that are outside of Jesus Christ. Each and every one of you know someone, a neighbor, a friend, whoever, who is lost. Let me tell you something. Hell is a reality. If they die outside of Christ, they go to hell. Don't you desire that God would grant boldness to us to at least be the men and women to plead for their souls that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, during Bible study, we were discussing Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. And as I was teaching through that passage, I was talking about what Jesus is really talking about is persistent prayer. It's not a singular ask. It's keep asking. It is keep seeking. It is keep knocking. That's what the Greek verb tense means there in Matthew 7, 7. We're to be as believers constantly knocking and seeking and asking of God according to His will. And at the end of the Bible study, praise God, my son gave a testimony. It wasn't intended to be a testimony, but he stood up and he said, I just want to tell everybody 
you know, that you have to keep doing this. And he said, look at my parents. They prayed 35 years for me to come to Christ. 35 years. He said, and I prayed for my wife to come to Christ. And my wife has come to Christ. And we're together in Christ. And he said, and now I start praying for my daughters to come to Christ. Now, all the glory to God. Right? There's no pats on the back that Barbara and I deserve. All the glory to God because He is sovereign in salvation. And His mercy prevailed. But you know what? I wasn't going to die not praying for the salvation of my children. And now I'm not going to die not praying for the salvation of my grandchildren. And you know what? I'm going to take it a step further. Should the Lord tarry and the Lord not come, I'll pray for the salvation of my great-grandchildren who I'll probably never see. In my family, there has been a heritage of faith that spans over a hundred years, which is rare. But you know what? Persistent prayer, believing God, that God will, God will do, and God does hear from heaven. Listen, folks, here's the challenge. What could be more important? Listen, seriously. I want to ask you a few questions. Number one, that show on TV that you love so much. Or that shows on TV that you love so much. Is that more important than Christ? That extra half hour of sleep. Will you drop dead because you didn't get that extra half hour of sleep? Is that more important than Christ? Whatever leisure activity you're involved in, is that more important than Christ? Listen, we think we live so busy lives. Oh, I'm always running. I'm always going here, there. and I guarantee you. I guarantee you. Give me your calendar. I'll find you a half hour. Give me your calendar. I'll find you an hour. Some people get so intimidated to pray for an hour. I pray for an hour. What are you talking about? How can we pray for an hour? Two weeks ago, I called for the church to come out to have the first prayer meeting for the conference. Some of you were there. We prayed for two hours straight. That's not a pat on the back. Honestly, you know what I wish? I wish we would have started at 7 and we would have ended at 3 o'clock in the morning. Old-fashioned prayer meeting on our knees, wearing ourselves out before God till we have no more words and our voices are dry. Prayer is the lifeline. Prayer is the fuel. We see great and mighty things happening in the early church because they were a people who prayed. And if you study church history, all throughout church history, you see mighty moves of God, and those mighty moves of God are always precipitated by believing Christians that they found in prayer. In chapter 4 of Acts, which is where we're going to spend the lion's share of our time, there is one passage that I want to explore with you. 
that provides more insight into the praying church and the power of prayer. And it's found in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 31. Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 31. So turn in your Bibles there to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to begin at verse 24, but we're going to skip a little as we go down. Now I want to set the context for you. Here's the context. The context is that Peter and John went to the temple to pray. And when they went to the temple to pray, they were met by the same beggar who is at the temple gate. And the Word of God tells us that this beggar was crippled since birth. Now to be crippled in first century Palestine was devastating. You couldn't work. You couldn't earn. So the only way that you could get money was how? By begging and people offering money to you. And this man sat day after day after day at the temple gate. And in a supernatural act of apostolic power, Peter heals this man. And it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Acts chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. This may be old news to some of you. But the Word of God says, And Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. This is a supernatural miracle. This was apostolic power. Hey, you're asking me for money. I don't have any money. But what I, give you, what I will give you is in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and work. Now, one thing you know, if anybody is crippled, right, muscles are atrophied. Bones are weak. So in a nanosecond, by divine power of God, those feet, those muscles were strengthened. The man gets up, and he's strong. And this is followed by an amazement in the crowd. And what does Peter do? God bless Peter. Peter takes an opportunity and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He calls the people to repent and to, to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this news reaches the Sadducees and the members of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. And instead of being, wow, a genuine, bona fide miracle of God has taken place, what do they do? They send for Peter and John, and they arrest them, and they seek to interrogate them. If you look at Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, Verse 17. Actually, go back to verse 15 for context. 
Here's the council discussing. But when they had ordered them to go out, uh, aside out of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny that. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more uh, to any man in the name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Hey, this is going on today in the United States. This is going on in the United States, right? You can't mention Jesus in the public discourse. You can't mention Jesus in, 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 in governmental meetings, right? Our government is saying, speak no more about this Jesus lest it spread any further. So I want you to get the context. Peter and John knew exactly who these people were. How did he know? Because these were the same people that arrested Jesus and interrogated Jesus and crucified Jesus. So now there's a precedent, right? There's a precedent set. Maybe we should shut up. Maybe we shouldn't speak about Christ any longer. And so what do they do? What do Peter and John do? Peter gives a brilliant defense. He says here in verse 19, Peter and John answered them and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot, uh, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Praise God. They said, hey, we've seen it. We were with Jesus. We saw what you did. We saw you crucified. But we saw on the third day Him raised again. And He is the living God. So you're telling me to shut up? I can't shut up. I'm going to continue to speak. And look at verse 21, chapter 4. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis which they might punish them on the account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So here was a guy crippled from birth, 40 years old, and he's jumping around, breakdancing all over the temple gate and doing all this stuff. But the question we need to ask ourselves is what did Peter and John instinctively think to do? Notice verse 23. And when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said. What did they do? Where did they go? They went to the church. They went to the church. Peter and John went to the church. Why? Because the church was a praying community. They were praying community. And now the church begins to pray for this situation. But notice, here's the question. How does the church pray for this situation? There's several things we see in the church's prayer. Number one, there is a prayer of praise. So the church comes together to praise God. And there is a prayer for help. And that is results in a powerful move of 
God. A powerful move of God. Let's look at the prayer of praise. Notice what they do. They pray to the all-powerful God. Before they ask God, they start by praising and adoring who He is. Note that they lift their voice in one accord. Look at verse 24. And when they heard this, this is the church now, when they heard this, they lifted their voice to God's in one accord and said, O Lord, it is Thou who didst make the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Notice they didn't come rushing in and bum-rushing the Lord and saying, Lord, we need Your help right away. What did they do? They came first with praise. When we get together on Wednesday night to pray, we come together to praise, to thank, to exalt, to glorify Christ. That's always preeminent in our prayers. We want to thank Him. We want to recognize Him. We need to bow before Him before we start uttering all of our petitions and our requests. Here you see the early church did the same thing. And they realized something. The Sanhedrin may have had the power in Jerusalem, but God Almighty was the sovereign of all and everything bows to His will. That's what they mean when they say there, Thou Lord... You were the one who made the heavens. You were the one who made the earth and the sea and all that is in them. There's a second thing they do here. They recognize the sovereignty of God. Look at verses 25 to 28. They go on to say, Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David thy servant did say, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against this Christ. For truly in the city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, notice this, to do whatever thy hand had predestined to occur. They looked at God and they saw the sovereignty of God. This, they're quoting from Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm of Jesus Christ. God had prophesied that the hatred of the Son of God. And they're looking at the Scriptures and saying, Father, this is taking place. And you're going to do whatever your hand has predestined to do. When we're in trial, when we're in situations, do we look at it and say, Oh God, you're the sovereign God. And whatever your hand has ordained, Father, it is well with my soul. Notice their prayer for help. Their praise gave way to their request. And it's more than just a, a generic prayer of help. It was a prayer that God's will would be done. And whatever that may involve. Look at verse 29 to 30. Look at this. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all boldness while thou dost extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. Notice this. They pray for courage to stand. 
They pray for courage to stand against the tide of persecution that is coming against them and for God's confirmation of God's will and power. Now I always say, if I put this in the modern vernacular, that prayer meeting today would have looked, Lord, bind those people. Don't let them do this. Lord, we pray down. Lord, smite the enemy. That's not what they prayed. They prayed God. Take note of their threats. But, and I want you to remember this, this is very important. Grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all boldness. What was the warning that the Sanhedrin told them? We don't want you to speak anymore, anymore about this Jesus. No more of this. Don't speak about it. Don't speak about the resurrection of the dead. What did they pray for? Grant that thy servants may speak thy word with all boldness. With resoluteness. With strong conviction. They pray to stand. They didn't pray for deliverance from the threats. Rather for boldness. You know what we need to pray for as a church? We need to pray for boldness. We need to pray that God raises up in this local body men and women who are going to stand for truth. Men and women who are going to stand for the Word of God. We need to ask God not to deliver us from the circumstances, but that the Lord would equip us with strength and with faith and with conviction and with power that we could go forth in a wicked world and we could live lives reflecting the light of Jesus Christ. To all that are there. So they, they have a prayer of praise. They have a prayer for help. And what is the net result? Here's the net result. A powerful move of God. A powerful move of God. What I like to say, a genuine, authentic, spontaneous move of God. Look at verse uh, 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Note the text. I really want you to see this in the text. The move of God was in direct response to their prayer. The text says, And when they had prayed... Now let me ask a very logical question. Do you think there would have been a bold move of God had they not prayed? Do you think that God would have done a move, you know, if they just were paralyzed there or they went back to the church and the church got caught up in the daily affairs of life and didn't press in and seek God and believe God at His Word, and through faith cry to the living God, do you think there would have been a word? I think that the Scripture says, and when they had prayed. Here's the issue. What is the thing in your life? What is the element in your life 
How is your... You want more of God? You want more of Christ? Do you look at other Christians and go, oh boy, I wish I could be like that one. I wish I could be like that one. When was the last time you got together with God and you prayed and you stayed upon the Lord and stayed upon the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I'm not going to let you go lest you bless me. Lord, I'm going to continue to ask. I'm going to continue to seek. I'm going to continue to knock. I'm going to do it because, Father, I'm evil. I know how to give good gifts to my children. But you are God. And will you deny me Christ? The move of God that occurs here was a direct response to prayer. And had they not prayed or sought the face of the Almighty, had they not come to believe that all things are possible, with God, what would have become of those saints? Listen, rather than trusting pragmatism, rather than trusting their own wisdom, rather than retaliating against the Sanhedrin and leading a political protest, oh, you know, it's unfair, unfair, unfair. Rather than fleeing to safety, they prayed. What precedes a mighty move of God? 100% of the time. 100% of the time. It is people praying and believing God for a move of His Spirit. That's 100% of the time. D.L. Moody said this, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. Every great move of God. You know, church, I don't know if you know this, we need a great move of God in this place. We need a great move of God. More of the same is not sufficient. We need a move of God and it's only going to come about as we as a people in one accord believe God and are on our faces before God asking God to do a great move. God does amazing things. He does extraordinary things through ordinary people who believe Him. I mentioned earlier, weak churches do not pray. Weak Christians do not pray. Prayerless Christians should expect nothing from God. Seriously. You should expect nothing. James says you have not because you ask not. And that you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. You ask amiss. But many in the church, many in the church, and I mean the church universal, do not practice this discipline of prayer. And if they do, it's usually a wish list of things. You know, Lord, I need this, I need that, I need the other thing. These men that we read about in Acts, they were committed. 
to the purpose of Christ. To the advancement of the Gospel. And especially they were committed to the will of God. What is the will of God? Therefore, the only spiritual thing for them to do was to seek the Lord in prayer and seek His favor in this situation and be willing to abide whatever it was. You know the story of Peter. Peter's going to become a martyr. 8064, he's going to be crucified upside down. John, John's going to be thrown into a vat of oil and supernaturally he's not going to burn. He's not even going to get a blister. And so what did they do? Well, if they can't kill him, they can get rid of him. So they ship him off to the island of Patmos to rot. Listen, the church will rise and fall based on prayer. And the Christian will rise and fall based on prayer. The church will it either advance or retreat due to how much the church prays. And what is the fuel of prayer? What is the combustion of prayer? You know what the fuel of prayer is? Faith. Not an abstract kind of faith like, I have my faith. That's not what we're talking about. Faith in the plan and in the purpose of God. It's faith in the plan and in the purpose of God. And it is faith that mobilizes prayer to move upon the heart of God. And this faith of a church united in one accord that we read about here in Acts it move the heart of God. Listen, how much did it move the heart of God? Look, at, look again at verse 31. And the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. I want to show you a few things right here in this verse. Number one, it was shaken. It means it literally was shaken. The building was shaken. As God did at Pentecost with a mighty rushing wind that came in, God did again by shaking the building, saying, I am here. I have heard your prayer. I have answered your prayer. God demonstrated His supernatural power to those believers. The place was shaken. But what else happened? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Interesting note. They had all been filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. What's the implication? Is there one filling? Is there multiple fillings? Well, apparently it appears there's multiple fillings, right? They were filled at Pentecost, but yet again in response to their prayer, they were filled again with the Holy Spirit. Church, what we need are Christians to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Abiding in the will of God. Leaning upon God for His Word. Taking direction from the Word of God. Not some kind of mystical thing where you're walking around like this, that, or the other thing. But filled with the Word of God. Filled with the faith of God. Boldly proclaiming the Gospel of truth. And let me share something else with you. What was it that they had asked? 
they had asked, Lord, grant that thy servants may speak thy word with all boldness. What was it in verse 31 that happened to them after they were filled with the Holy Spirit? They began to speak the word of God with all boldness. God answered their prayers. God answered their prayers right there. God said, yes, I have heard, and now I will move. By the way, there's an interesting thing in the book of Acts. Whenever you see they were filled with the Holy Spirit, you usually will see that they spoke the Word of God with boldness. You usually see that somewhere, somehow, whoever was filled with the Holy Spirit went out and proclaimed the Gospel. You want to know somebody's filled with the Holy Spirit? How do they proclaim the Word of God? How do they believe the Word of God? Do they pray like they're able to move mountains? This early church was built on prayer. Let me tell you something. This is where we need to be as a church. We need to be a community of believers that come together, believe God, and press in and pray. So the question for us today is, can God do this today? we got to ask ourselves, and I'm pretty confident that if I asked each and every one of you, do you believe that God could do this today? I'm pretty confident that 100% of you would say, yes, I, I believe that. But is that really the right question? Many believe in God's supernatural abilities. But the real question is, do you think, do you believe that God will do it. That's the question of faith. Not merely believing in the attributes of God, but do you believe that those attributes, those power of God, will do it today? We must be men and women of prayer, those who seek the face of God. And as I said time and time again, the issue boils down to is, do you want more of Christ? Do you want the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life? Well, the proof is in the pudding. We will not get more of God. We will not see souls saved and see believers filled with the Holy Spirit if we do not pursue the very object of our souls through prayer. The apostles prayed in faith and in response, God moved. Church, we have to untangle ourselves from this world. We have to. Ask God to set you free from entertainment. Ask God to set you free from social media. Ask God to untangle your life from all the trappings of this world that all it does is it sucks your time away and your intention away from Him. We can expect nothing from God if we focus on this life and the things of this world, did not Jesus say, what is the profit of man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Also Jesus in Matthew 6.33, what does he tell of the pursuit of kingdom living? What is it? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things shall be added unto you. Did not the Lord tell the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 30, 
33.3, Call unto Me, and I will answer you. And I will tell you, I will show you great and mighty things that thou knowest not. Didn't the prophet Isaiah say, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Does not Psalm 161 and 2 say, I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplication because He has inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon Him as long as I live. Church, I honestly mean this. And I don't, say, I don't say this at you. I say this toward us. We need to repent as a church. We do. And as individuals. We are all consumed by this life. We are all news watchers and fret over the latest trends in the news. And fully engaged in the minutia of this life. We are not that praying community, but we can become that praying community. And a good work is already started on Wednesday night. And I encourage you to join us. I encourage you to join us. When? When is the time when we will grow tired of this sinful world? When is the time that we realize that we are sons and daughters of the living God, the very One who spoke all things into existence? When will we realize that only one life so soon it will pass, only what's done for Christ shall last? I believe with all of my heart that our church has not reached its potential for the kingdom of God. And that responsibility lies with each and every one of us. Today is the day to say, no more. No more. I'm going to press in. I want to close with this. Revelation 3, verses 11 to 13. This is the Lord speaking to the church at Philadelphia, the faithful church. He says this, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God. You know what? Everybody's going around getting tattooed. I want to be tattooed with the name of my God. Praise God. And he will write upon him and, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And then he ends with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, that was written to the church at Philadelphia. It's also written to us. We must overcome we must overcome this life. This life is filled with deceit and fraud. True living is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And if you don't know Christ, you need to repent of your sin. You need to turn in faith and put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. 
And I pray that you will say, I had enough. I want Jesus. And I want Him in all of His fullness and all of His glory and all of His grandeur. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn my heart to prayer. And I'm going to press in and I'm not going to let go until I have that. And pray for your church. Pray for this church, please. Pray for this church. That God will do a mighty, powerful work for the kingdom of God right here. That's what I'm believing God for. Join with me in a word of prayer.